So our scripture reading today is 2 Samuel chapter 12. Uh, we are working our way through uh, the book of 2 Samuel. And so uh, last week, if you were here, well, really, whether you were here or not, last week we were in chapter 11. Uh, chapter 11, if you are familiar with uh, 2 Samuel at all, chapter 11 is uh, titled uh, David and Bathsheba. Uh, chapter 11 takes us through that sin of David against Bathsheba, the sin of David against Uriah, her husband. Uh, really, David's sin against all of Israel as he abused the position that God had uh, anointed him to as king of Israel. And, uh, and isn't that the reality of all of our sin, though, that all of our sin has a community impact. I mean, we like to think that it's just me and maybe the person that I've sinned against, but the reality is all of our sin actually affects all of God's people. And we saw it with David as, as multiple men who fought in David's name would lose their lives just to cover up the murder of Uriah. We don't like to think about how our sin has a community impact, although uh, the Old Testament never shies away from that. We, as maybe Western uh, Christians, we, we get a little antsy when we read things about uh, a man who sins against God and then his entire family suffers the consequences of it. And we think, well, that doesn't seem fair. But the reality is our sin affects others. So, uh, just to give you sort of a layout of last week, this week, and next week. So if we had a single title for each week over the next three weeks, we could have said last week, uh, the sin committed, as chapter 11 unpacks what David did. This week, as we look at chapter 12, it's the sin confronted, as Nathan comes uh, in the name of God to confront David's sin. Next week, uh, Bob Underwood, one of our elders, is going to be preaching on Psalm 51. Uh, and I would urge you to spend time reading through Psalm 51 this week. The title of Psalm 51 tells us this is the psalm that David wrote after Nathan confronted him in his sin. And so next week you would say, uh, a sin confessed. So we've got the sin committed, the sin confronted, the sin confessed. But this week we are in, uh, in chapter 12, or at least the first 15 verses of chapter 12, looking at uh, God's confrontation of David's sin. Would you stand with me for the reading of God's word? In 2 Samuel chapter 12, and we will read just through the first half of verse 15. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. He used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd 
to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he has done this thing and because he has had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would, ha I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. The grass withers and the flowers fall, and yet the word of the Lord remains forever. You may be seated. So even while we might call this portion of Scripture sin-confronted, what really overwhelms about these 14 and a half verses is not really the confrontation of sin. Although that certainly comes through. In fact, it's, uh, as we've read Hebrew uh, writings, uh, you'll notice that in these 15 verses, right smack in the middle, is the confrontation of the sin. You are the man, right there in verse 7. And we will certainly get to that soon. But what really overwhelms us, or what ought to overwhelm us when we read this passage, is the grace of God. God's grace shining through this passage is, is shocking. In our sinful and limited reasoning, we read this passage. And how many of you can uh, admit with me that David says, I've sinned, and Nathan immediately says, your sin has been taken away? And doesn't it just feel a little too easy. 
doesn't it just feel like, really? Or we read and he says, you will not die, but your son will. And aren't we disturbed by that? And so we will come to that somewhat, uh, hopefully in a way of understanding. But as we work through it, I want you to, to look at this passage. There are six things that we're going to see. It's in your bulletin. We're going to see that grace doesn't wait for you to act. Grace is not above being subtle. Grace confronts sin. Grace does not always alter consequences. Grace does not rely on prescribed penance, and grace does not erase, but substitutes. Now, one thing I want you to do in your outline before we even do anything, if you're a note taker, just take a pen and don't scribble it out, but draw a line through grace, but you still want to be able to see grace, and just above it, write God. God does not wait for you to act. Because sometimes we look at grace as if it's some sort of physical or spiritual or some sort of mystical essence in and of itself that we have to learn how to receive or learn how to manipulate in some way. But grace is simply an attribute, a characteristic of God. It's not something that forces God's hand. Grace isn't something that we use to manipulate God. Grace, is, grace exists because God is gracious. God is merciful. And so all of these points... If we only think of them as grace and don't think of God in these places, we still won't get it. But when we realize it's God who doesn't wait for you to act, it's God who's not above being subtle. It's God who confronts your sin. It's God who doesn't always alter the consequences. It is God who does not need your prescribed penance And it is God who doesn't erase your sin, but he makes a substitute for you. Then then we begin to understand how even here in the middle of the Old Testament, we catch a glimpse of what God is at work doing, even through his Son. All right, so first let's look at this. Grace, or or God, does not wait for you to act. So in chapter 11... uh, There is a repeated verb that's used over and over. I probably didn't point it out to you last week. It's just because I was waiting for this week. I apologize. Uh, I I was about to say in advance, but it's a week late, so I'm sorry. Uh, Anyway, the verb is sent or send. And you see it all throughout chapter 11. And most of the time, though not always, it's David. David sends. David sends. David sent Joab and the army out to fight the battle. David sends word to ask about the woman. David sends for Bathsheba and takes her. 
Bathsheba sends word. David sends word to Joab to send Uriah. Joab sends Uriah. David promises to send Uriah back. Then David sends Uriah back, carrying his own death warrant. Joab sends the news to David, and David a second time sends for and takes Bathsheba. The author's intent is poignant. David appears to be the one in control. He's in charge. We ought to read chapter 11, even as I pointed out last week. We ought to be reading and wondering throughout the chapter as it draws to a a close, where is God? Where is God in the midst of this? And then we get that note in the last verse, but the matter was evil in the eyes of the Lord. And chapter 12 opens with, now it's God's turn to act. And God sent Nathan to David. If we hadn't just read the entire passage, if that's all we read, especially based on chapter 11, we might be thinking, oh, here it is. It's the hard fall of the foot coming up the stairs when you've been told 38 times to settle down and go to bed. And then you hear the steps. And you know, those are not the steps of mercy. It's the announcement of the frustrated, flustered, overwhelmed mom finally has had enough and says, wait till your father gets home. And she's not saying that because of such a delight it is to the whole household when daddy gets home and we all get to enjoy the festivities of the evening and and the cool of the summer breeze. It is a threat. It is a threat threat to your very existence. I have done everything I can with you. Pray your father does not end you. (laughs) That's almost what we hear. And God sent Nathan to David. But that's not what we should hear. What we should hear is a God who loved David still. God who would not leave him where he was. God sent Nathan to David. This is Romans 5. While we were weak, Christ died for us. One would barely be willing to die for a righteous person. Maybe you would die for a good person, but God shows his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Sometimes we we think of God as, as the genie. You know, phenomenal cosmic power. But you have to ask. You know, we, we approach God as though, yeah, he can do things for you, but you got to make the first step. I mean, he can't, he can't, can't give you the three wishes unless you af- actually ask. That's not the God we see here. He's not waiting on David. He doesn't need David to come to him. He goes to David. God pursues David. In Ephesians 2, you were dead in your trespasses and sin, and yet God, being rich in mercy because of the love with which he loved us, not because you figured it out, 
Dead people don't figure it out. But because of his grace and mercy, he sent Jesus. He has made us alive. When you are dead, no one is waiting for you to speak up to see if you'd like to be alive. When Jesus was at Lazarus' tomb, he wasn't waiting, longingly, lovingly, gently waiting, Lazarus, if you would just cry out to me, I could raise you from the dead. That's not how it works. Lazarus, just tell me what you want and I'll, I'll grant it to you, but you must ask first. No, if that were true, Lazarus would be like, well, like the musical Hamilton, King Louis' head, saying, don't ask me, I'm super dead. You don't ask a dead person what it wants. Well, I mean, you can ask a dead person what it wants, but the only way he's going to respond is if you can first raise the dead person to respond. God moves first, always. God moves towards sinners because sinners left to themselves will never move toward God. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is none that seek after God. God seeks us. If God waited for you to act before he could move toward you in grace, he would never move toward you, you would still be dead in your sin. We love because he first loved us. God sent Nathan. God does not wait for you to act. Second, God is not above being subtle. You know, Genesis 3 opens up with that warning. Now, the serpent was more crafty or more subtle than any other creature. But Satan doesn't have the corner on that market. Satan is not the only one who can be subtle. And isn't that wonderful? Isn't it great that the confrontation doesn't come till verse 7? Like, first, I mean, Nathan just approaches with a story. And the story is told. We don't know if David thinks this is a real person or if David recognizes it's a parable. Uh, There's clues in the passage that make it pretty obvious that it's a parable. He says, you know, there was a rich man and a poor man, and they lived in a certain city. Like, that's an intentionally vague thing. I mean, if he was trying to trick him into thinking, this was real, David, he would have said, and they lived in Bethlehem. But he says, they lived in a certain city. Nobody lives in a certain city. You live somewhere. So it's obvious that it's a story, but it's a story that David is drawn into. Maybe David and Nathan have had these kinds of, uh, let's have an ethical dilemma conversation. Let's sharpen your skills as a king. Let's raise some, some hypotheticals, David, and you, you see how you respond. We know that David and Nathan are friends because David had approached Nathan one evening in the cool of the night as they were walking about on, on the top of, on David's house. And he says, hey, I should build a temple for the Lord. And Nathan says to him, that's a great idea. The Lord is with you. And then he learns that that's not what God's intent was. And yet, and so there's this relationship that David and Nathan have, a relationship in which Nathan can come to him. But Nathan knows, as each of us should know, that it's not always, it's not always the 
most strategic way to get to someone's heart to use the subtlety of a sledgehammer on a big toe. Sometimes that backfires. Sometimes if you go straight at the issue, all you end up doing is bringing walls up and defensiveness and justification or anger or resentment or who are you? Nathan comes with a story. There's a rich man. There's a poor man. All we know about the rich man is just how rich he is. He's got flocks and herds. The poor man has a stable home, a compassionate heart, a loving family. Even in his poverty, we're told it's not just that he had a lamb, but he actually purchased this lamb. Like he went out of his way to buy this lamb and bring this lamb in. It, it ate from his plate and it drank from his cup and it, it rested in his arms. This was a lamb that appreciated the security of a good home life. You know, I didn't bring this up last week, but you know, when we see Uriah's response to David, when David tries to woo him back to go and sleep with his wife, Uriah shows himself, and we, we saw this, Uriah shows himself to be a rather godly individual. He won't break God's law. He won't, uh, he won't uh, disrespect the king or the other men who are still sleeping in the field. That should cause us to realize that Uriah and Bathsheba had a godly home. Like, we read this, and our first thought, and too many times our first thought is, well, what did she do? And that is so sinful. That's so sinful. Don't do that. Can I tell you that no matter what anyone does, nobody deserves to be sinned against. No matter what you do, you don't earn sin from other people. There's nothing in the passage that indicates to us that Bathsheba had it coming to her. David sinned entirely against Bathsheba, against her husband, against Israel. This was David's sin. And just as this man, this rich man, took the poor man's lamb, David took Bathsheba and laid with her. And then David took Bathsheba and made her his wife. I'm sure David, this, this, the beauty of the subtlety here is just bringing David in. Maybe these are, again, if they're like these hypotheticals that he and, and, he and, his, uh, and his friend Nathan have had conversations before. Or just the brilliance of using uh, this poor shepherd, this poor man and his lamb. David, it would cause David to remember simpler times. Do you ever feel that way about your life? You ever think, those were simpler days. Oh, if I could get back to those days. And you hear about this man and, and his lovely little ewe lamb. And David thinks, oh, I remember carrying those. Oh, yeah, I used to feed a little ewe lamb. Oh, it was so sweet. And then, like, he just brings, like, he, the perfect telling of the story. 
David is outraged. David is rightly outraged. Everything David says in response to this story is the correct response. First of all, he's outraged religiously. As the Lord lives, this man deserves to die. He's outraged because he knows that this this man has earned death for his actions. He deserves to die. He's outraged over just the injustice of it all. This man has to, not only does he need to die, he needs to pay that man back fourfold for what he's done to him. David's anger is submissive to God as the Lord lives. His anger is punitive. He deserves to die. And his anger is restorative. He needs to restore what he has taken. It's the right response to sin. And he's right where God wants him. God has subtly removed the blinders. He has unstopped David's ears so that he is ready to listen. He has, he has scraped away the calluses of David's heart. I wonder if sometimes you and I could uh, even take a lesson from Nathan. Are you and I sometimes, maybe as parents, are you as subtle as a sledgehammer on a big toe when it comes to talking to your kids about sin? Is there room for nuance? Is there room for just drawing out? Help me understand. As a parent of four adult sinners, uh, children, <laughs> I would just tell you that's, not, that's easier said than done. You know, as parents, how many parents out there ever feel like, I don't know the answer to your problem? Anyone? Come on. Now, the honest, all right, so maybe the older you get, you start to realize that. But the honest truth is when our kids approach to us or we see their sin, our first thought is, idiot. I know what you should have done. And I'm about to tell you, in 25 easy-to-follow steps, all the ways you went wrong, we, as parents, we... Um, we suffer from diarrhea of the mouth. You ever, does that ever happen to you? Your kids do something, and really the first three words were enough, but you just can't stop it. You just don't know how to, you don't, you don't have a reverse, you don't even have a neutral at this point. You are going, and it's coming out, and you're, you're downshifting now, and you're, you're just pouring it on. And all you've done is where the first three words could have been enough, now the 700 word treatise that follows has masked the first three words and you've lost the opportunity. I'm not saying that Nathan doesn't explain to David his sin, but first there's subtlety. There's always, there's subtlety first and then there's confrontation because there is confrontation. God does confront our sin in two words in the original Hebrew language. You're the man. It's you. It is not grace. It is not mercy to pretend that sin is not sinful. That is not grace. It is not grace or mercy to pretend that sin doesn't really matter. 
God's grace shows us our sin. Tis grace that taught my heart to fear. And grace that fear relieved. Through Nathan, the Lord lays out for David exactly what he has done. First, you have denied my goodness. You have denied the goodness of God. When we sin, we deny God's goodness. He says, I anointed you as king. I delivered you from Saul. I gave you your master's house. I gave you the houses of Israel and Judah. And if that weren't enough, I would have given you even more. When we sin, we deny the goodness of God. To confront sin must show us where have I denied God's goodness. But in verse 9, we don't just deny God's goodness. We despise God's word. You have despised the word of the Lord. When we sin, we act as though we hate God's law, or at least as far as it applies to ourselves. You struck down Uriah. You took the wife of Uriah to be your own. You used treachery. You used the, the sword of the Ammonites to kill Uriah. You despised God's word. And when we deny God's goodness and we despise God's word, the reality is, the bottom line of it is, that when we sin in that moment, it is not just God's word that we despise. It is God himself. We despise God. You have despised me, he says in verse 10. We sin because in the moment we hate God. I hate God. You, God, I hate your law. I don't see anything good in my life. The only way to get what I want right now is to turn against you. I don't think God is enough. I don't think God is good enough. This is why it is a kindness of God to confront our sin. It is grace in God to show you your sin. It's grace and mercy that points out to you, you've denied my goodness, you've despised my word, you've despised me. There have been moments in each of our children's lives where we've had opportunity to show our, remind our children that it's actually God's love for you that revealed your sin to us. If God didn't love you, he would have left you thinking you could get away with this. It's actually because he loves you that he doesn't want you to feel like you can get away with this. It's God's love, God's mercy, God's grace that confronts our sin. It's God's love and mercy that allows a friend or a spouse or a parent or a child to see your sin and point it out to you. Parents, have you ever had the the unwanted, unsought privilege of a child pointing out a sin to you and knowing 100% they are totally right. That is absolutely right. I could, I'm not going to pick big ones, obviously. I can't let you know big problems I'm having. But uh, there was a time I was driving down the road with one of my kids and somebody did something 
revealed on the road that they were obviously a pagan and godless. And I was commenting on their godlessness. And uh, I don't even remember which child, but one of my children said, so is this what, like, is this what the Bible means when it says, like, like we call each other fool or we, we hate others and that, that's murdering them in our hearts? Are we, like, is that, are you murdering him in your heart? <laughs> and you know what, like, all I could say, like, I mean, I'm, I'm very grateful for the response I had because all I said was, yes. <laughs> yep. Yes, that's, you are entirely correct. That is totally right. Yes, I, I have no excuse. Everything you just said is totally true. I wish that guy was dead on the side of the road, not in the middle of the road would be preferable. But, you know, we laugh about it, we joke about it, but, I mean, God's love for us is such that he will confront your sin. That is a grace. That is a mercy. There's no mercy in letting you get away with it. I mean, is it a mercy to watch a person play in the middle of the street with a bus barreling down on them? Is that a mercy? It's like, well, you do you. I don't want to upset you. You seem to be having a good time. That's not mercy. Mercy is shoving them out of the way. Mercy confronts sin. But God's grace does not always mean that the consequences can be avoided. The sword will not depart from your house. Evil will rise up from within your own household. What you thought you could do in secret and get away with will be done publicly to you before the eyes of all of Israel. What do we think about this? Do we think that's too much? Is this retri- ret- retributive? Retributive? Well, it is. If David has a right to react to a hypothetical sin, does God have a right to respond to actual sin? If the invented man deserves death, do we, as actual sinners, deserve anything different? I mean, consider the God of the universe who uses, to use the genie quote again, who uses his, his phenomenal cosmic power to bless you, to raise you up. Does that God have a right to be outraged when you scorn him? Of course he does. You know, we read this and we think, well, does this mean that God was manipulating David's household to become evil? Is it, was God changing the nature of David's household in order to punish David? No. James 1, 13 to 15, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. 
Desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin. Sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. We read this prophecy and we assume that it's a prophecy that changed the nature of David's household. But do we have to read it that way? The servants knew what David did. Joab knew what David did. Is there any reason to assume that David's adult children didn't have a clue about how David had acted? David's wives, did they not know what had happened? And let me ask you, if we model for our children a despising of God's word, a despising of God, a denying of God's goodness to us, should we be shocked if our children pick up on that? If we despise God, should we be shocked if our children grow up despising God? If we despise the law of God, should we be shocked that our children grow up despising the law of God? This isn't some prophecy that came from out of the blue. This is a prophecy of this is the reality of your household, David. Look what you have laid out for your house. So many of your sons will pick up exactly where you left off. Luke 17, 1 to 4 says, listen, temptations are sure to come. The children are are answerable for their own sins. Ezekiel tells us that. In Ezekiel, I'm reading Ezekiel right now, and there's this one chapter. It's like, you have this goofy parable. The fathers eat sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. And God says, I'm so sick of that story. That is not how it works. If the father sins, the father gets punished for his sin. If the son sins, the son gets punished for his sin. The son does not get punished for the father's sin. The son has enough sin of his own to worry about. He doesn't have to worry about what the father did. Luke 17, Jesus says, Temptations are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into a sea than that one of these little ones would be caused to sin. Yes, all of David's offspring are answerable for their own sins, and yet they watched their father and his interactions and all of his wives and his concubines and his interactions and how Bathsheba came into the household. And did it have no impact on them? Of course it did. And God's grace does not always alter the consequences. Fifth, God's grace does not rely on your prescribed penance. David's response in verse 13, I've sinned against the Lord. Again, in Hebrew, two words. I've sinned against the Lord. And Nathan's reply, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. Have you, ever, have you ever not confessed your sin because you didn't feel sorry enough? 
Have you ever like seen your sin, knew you sinned, know you need to confess your sin, but felt like you needed to wait a little? Because it just didn't, you just didn't have the right, you didn't, you weren't, you didn't feel like you were sorry enough. You didn't have quite the right feels about it. So you're just going to wait, maybe pick a fight with your spouse so that you can feel worse and then you can uh, confess your sin. Do something that'll make you feel bad and then go and confess your sin. David says two words. I've sinned against the Lord. And God takes away his sin. Your sin has been put away. God doesn't need your prescribed penance. Grace isn't grace when it's dependent on whether you feel the right way or whether you've said enough words. If grace is unmerited, if grace is undeserved, unearned, then grace is unmerited, undeserved, unearned. And finally, God does not erase your sin, but God does substitute. It's interesting that David himself pronounced the verdict over his own sin. When he said, as surely as the Lord lives, that man deserves to die. And he's right. As surely as the Lord lives, David deserves nothing other than death. And yet David would not die. But one would die. David's son would die. In fact, it's what these are, the final words of Nathan. If you put them all together, Nathan says, The Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. The wages of sin is death. We look at this and there's something in just our sentimental approach to life and to children and we think that's not fair. It's interesting though that there's no indicator that David felt that way. David received this and knew that this was Nothing less than he deserved. Abraham doesn't respond to God when God says to him, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and offer him as a burnt offering. A burnt offering was an offering in association with sin. Abraham recognizes, I deserve nothing less than this. 
It's the point of the entire sacrificial system in the Old Testament. Sin earns death. The whole sacrificial system points to, but God will accept a substitute. But God will accept a substitute for you. An animal in the place of the sinner. Did this son die for David's sin? No. No. Did this son die because of David's sin? Yes. Yes, because David had utterly scorned the Lord. And while we should not read too much into this death of this son, we should at least see in it a shadow, a glimpse, a pattern of a larger reality. Because for most of you here today, you know that a son of David died not just because of your sin, but died for your sin. His death actually did satisfy the wrath of God. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, not just the Son of David or offspring of David, not your son, not your child will die because of your sin. God's Son, God's only begotten Son would die for and because of your sin. All that is left for you is to repent and receive it. To go to God and say, I've sinned against the Lord. And the words of Nathan are words for you. God has taken away your sin. You will not die. Let's pray. God, your grace is amazing and overwhelming. Your grace is shocking and upsetting. And your grace is free. God, we thank you for the many ways, the subtle ways, the direct ways that you confront us in our sin. all the ways that you will use to draw us back to you. I pray, God, that we would not harden our hearts, but that we would cry out to you for mercy, confess to you our sin, and receive from you alone assurance that because your Son died for our sin, we need not die. Lord Jesus,